Welcome to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Join us for weekly discussions diving into all the particulars of communication, voice, swallow, and cognition with tangible applications to the world of medical speech and language pathology. I'm Leanne, your host, and today I'm sitting down with Rinky. We're going to be talking about expertise and the medical setting, dysphagia, and what those things mean and how they relate and just our experiences walking down that path. Some are much farther ahead than me. <laughs> and we're gonna be talking about that in so much more. So I'm really excited. Welcome, Rinky. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have a deep dive in, into these topics a little bit more and share experiences and share our thoughts. And thank you so much for having me as a guest. I, I love chatting with you. Oh, good. Me too. Me too. All right. And you've been on previously, we had a chat back at the beginning of COVID and we talked about mm -hmm. what that was like in your setting. So I'm excited to get to sit down and chat with you some more today. So before we dive into our topic, I want to learn a little bit more about you. Tell me who you are, where you are and what you do. So my name is Rinki Varandani Desai. I'm a speech pathologist, a medical speech pathologist working with adults. And I won't say my expertise is swallowing because we'll delve more into expertise today, but I specialize in swallowing disorders in adults. I'm originally from Mumbai, India. So I do have that experience of working in India as well, which is really interesting. Um, and I've been in the United States for 12 years now, and I've worked across settings from acute care to subacute rehab, long-term care. And I'm currently the adult outpatient clinical lead and clinical faculty at the University of Mississippi Medical Center in Jackson. So it's definitely been a long journey across settings, lots of learning. And outside of my day job, I have uh, been involved in initiatives like uh, volunteering with ASHA as the associate coordinator of SIG13, volunteering with the Dysphagia Research Society as co-chair of their COVID-19 task force, and then on the entrepreneurial or business side of speech pathology, I've been involved in developing an app called Dysphagia Therapy for a company called Tactus Therapy. And then I co-founded a website with Dr. Yanessa Humbert called STEP, uh, the Swallowing Training and Education Portal. And our goal is to empower and educate clinicians who want to learn more about swallowing disorders. So that's me in a nutshell. Excellent. That's an amazing highlight reel. You've been busy. Please tell me you haven't done all of those things at once because like now I'm getting a little nervous. <laughs> like, it's been a long journey and I still feel like there's so much more to accomplish and miles to go. But yeah, we I, I would love to talk about anything that you might want to learn more about. Okay, good. Well, I'm sure we're going to hit on a lot of those things. They're going to come up in this idea of, you know, what is expertise, how we're reaching for it and what it means and then how we where we're sourcing our information as practitioners from other sources. Yeah. So we're, we're just going to get into that. So before I jump into it, like prematurely, let's kind of set the stage and kind of do what we mean when we say different things. So I think we're going to start with like education versus expertise. How do we build education that we start off with, you know, obviously from grad school and then from taking continuing education and build that into expertise. Can I throw one more E word in there? Yes, I want to throw experience in there because when I think about expertise or people who call themselves experts or people who are working towards becoming experts, I think the two words that pop up a lot are education and experience. So what kind of training certifications, education do you have and what, how long have you practiced as a clinician? 
So uh-huh. maybe we could talk about both of those aspects and see how it ties in with expertise. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I think the definition of expertise has evolved over time. And I kind of read a lot about this a couple of years ago when we were developing some competency documents for ASHA, actually, as part of SIG-13, where we had to come up with the DCVT, and I'll share that with you, the Dysphagia Competency Verification Tool. And I thought competence is like a standard accepted measure. Like if you're good at something and um, we kind of started discussing what competence and being an expert means. And I realized the discussion is a lot more complicated than what's obvious. Just because you have 10 years of experience doesn't make you competent because you could have been doing the same thing wrong for 10 years versus someone who's just come out of grad school may have had a dysphagia, an advanced dysphagia course, may have had five adult practicum placements and might actually have more competence than their supervisor just because of the of the hands-on training they've had and the knowledge base they've had that their supervisor didn't. Mm-hmm. So overall, in all the literature that's out there, they define expertise as a continued deliberate practice where you spend years, like, up to 10 years or 10,000 hours of deliberate practice to acquiring and refining your skills. And that's what makes you an expert. What do you think of as expertise? Like before we discuss this more, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well. Mine is very simple. It's and probably embarrassing. It's like basically anyone who impresses me with the breadth of their knowledge and their ease in sharing it and Mm -hmm. and yeah, sharing it in the way that they are assisting me and bringing me up to that level of practice. Because somebody can be super smart and be practicing, you know, as we say, at the top of their license. But if they're not able to share that to the benefit of the field, then they're not really helping. They're helping their patients, thank goodness. (laughs) Let's let all of us help our patients. So do you think, let's kind of think about this. Again, this is me just thinking out loud. If, If we had a student, an influencer on social media who's run, who has like 10,000 followers, right? And they post about dysphagia every single day, but they're like a year out of school. They've just finished their CFY versus a researcher who's dedicated like 10 years of their life to just doing dysphagia research, but has never seen a patient clinically versus an everyday clinician who doesn't have a social media account, hasn't necessarily published research, but has excelled clinically at their job. And maybe they're like chief of division of speech pathology. They've run it, work at a voice and swallow clinic. Wouldn't it be really hard to tease out which one of these are experts? Because depending on our definition of expertise, each of these people could provide us with information that's valuable to us. But I think it would be really hard to tease out which one of them is an expert or how, who's better than the other in sharing their expertise, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're going to also be really knowledgeable about different types of things. Mm -hmm. So I think it comes down to that person who's seeking out the information. What information are they seeking out? What kind of skills do they want to improve? That's exactly what I was thinking. So yeah, I think a lot of onus falls upon the learner to kind of really seek out opportunities that are going to expand your own practice or knowledge base or whatever skill you're trying to acquire versus just saying, oh, I need to get X certification because it's going to make me a better clinician or I need to attend Y conference or learn from Z researcher because that's going to make me a better clinician or make me an expert clinician. Just because we that what that expertise means to you and your patients and your practice 
or your work setting is so different for each person. Mm-hmm. I thought that blew my mind when I started thinking about these things because right out of grad school, your goal is just to get some certifications. I want to attend an ASHA conference. I want to have my vital stem. You know, like it just, your goals are so um, black and white without necessarily thinking about the why. Like, mm-hmm. why am I pursuing this? Who, If society said this is going to make me a better SLP, are we really taking the time to think upon how that's helping us build upon our knowledge and how that's helping our patients? So I think that ability to self-reflect and build on your knowledge base is kind of what differentiates an everyday clinician from an expert clinician. Ooh, that's really interesting idea, Rinky. I'm, I'm interested in that because... <laughs> I was thinking about myself while you were talking, as I often do. That's hopefully a joke. But so <laughs> I love outpatient and that's where I really enjoy practicing the most. And it's a very different setting for dysphagia than acute care, than skilled nursing. All three of those settings, I feel like should practice dysphagia management vastly different because the patient is vastly different at each of those stages and has different needs. So the type of information that I'm after and the the expertise that I need to acquire is going to be different than the SLPs working in those other places. So how does that tie back in, like with what you were just saying about that idea dividing the clinician in that way? I think, yeah, like you're thinking about the learner and what they need to seek out, I think, and maybe how that's being rewarded by the people you're working for? Well, I'm just so much more discriminate in the type of education and knowledge that I seek out. Like, because I know, well, that sounds like something that I may not use as much. I really need information on this. This is the population that I'm seeing more of. This is what Mm. I need. So is it that kind of thought process that you're saying, like, we need to be encouraging and not just this blanket, like, okay, dysphagia and go. It's like, no, what within that do you need to improve on or really address to meet the needs of the caseload that you're working with? That's kind of what I'm building towards. So I think like you obviously need, there's a place for education, right? Like you need a certain degree, you need your master's, you need your C's to be even hired by most places. The DCVT, the ASHA tool, helps you check off on certain competencies that you absolutely need to have. So that's like your bare minimum knowledge base that is going to increase the probability that you can become a dysphagia expert. It's not something that's going to guarantee it because that could be all you learn and then you never take another course in your life. But that's the basic minimum requirement. And in terms of experience, again, you know, you have to have certain skills that you've met to be able to even go and conduct a video fluoroscopic study. What my problem is by facilities saying, well, if you can do 10 fees and VFSS, you're now competent to do this on your own Mm. because you could have done those 10 wrong or without support or in the being supervised by someone who doesn't even know their anatomy and physiology. So you haven't gone through the clinical decision-making process or the reasoning of how you tie in an impairment with aspiration or whether this is a breakdown at the peripheral or central control of swallowing and how that would affect your treatment. You haven't um, figured out how to have conversations with radiologists in their language, but you've been checked off on doing 10 and now you need to start practicing. Mm -hmm. Even versus some PRNs who literally have to walk into a new setting. Maybe they've worked in only school settings or nursing homes and now they're expected to walk into acute care and make these complex decisions about 
trach and bend patients or complex medical conditions. So I think the culture around like what is even expected out of a medical speech pathologist needs to change. Mm-hmm. And I think, yes, the onus is on the learner to figure out what's most important in their setting. But also, let's not equate that with like, we, we're not better SLPs because we provide more treatment minutes or because we have better productivity. We need to hold that accountability on ourselves by telling ourselves we're going to be better SLPs if we have better patient outcomes. We're going to be better better SLPs if we're able to track our own data and see why a certain treatment measure we used is truly producing objective change in a patient. And unfortunately, that's not rewarded. Mm-hmm. That's not you're not you're not paid. You're paid to show up and see patients, right? Yeah. But no one's really paying you for expertise, which which is definitely a huge problem in in the field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I see where it's also not not a priority. Like some places will have an extra budget for CEUs. But I think we're going to get into this topic a little bit later, but it doesn't start and stop with how many CEUs you get every year or where you get those CEUs. Like it's so much more beyond that. It's collaboration with other SLPs. It's talking over cases with other people. And like you said, like even the skill of learning how to talk to radiologists in the language that they use, like having having like productive discussions with other fields, you know, that's not something easily obtained from a CEU that comes from experience and learning like with somebody. And I think what our field is lacking the most of is that really qualified one-on-one experience. You know, we have our clinical fellowship, but it can be lacking in a lot of ways. And yeah, there's so much research out there. And I'll share some papers with you, which basically show you how graduate education isn't enough for all that we need to know in terms of normal swallowing. Dysphagia is covered a lot more now, but even then it's really the basics. They're not hitting upon all of those other conversations that we need to be having with patients, with administrators to advocate for like better instrumentation or having more support at work or having additional resources. And we're not even trained on how to evaluate evidence or if like if we have exposure to all these CEU courses, I know I've worked for some companies that will literally provide you with like free CEUs because it's the cheapest one they could find on dysphagia. That's age old. Like it's just stuff we don't do anymore because they don't care about investing in better education. But are we competent enough to even evaluate that and determine what's good for us or not? So those are some of the problems. And and we will talk about solutions in case anyone is still listening. I don't want them to feel like we're just talking about problems. But yeah, I think from a learner perspective, we have to use the resources we have access to, especially at ASHA, to figure out how to better evaluate evidence uh, when we're looking at social media, because that's the biggest way of online of education these days. How are we Let's start to judge our influencers, not based on their followers and likes and subscribers, but by their expertise. So I think those are things we need to start thinking about as we continue to build our education and seek out lifelong learning opportunities. I'm really fascinated by like the things that I've learned from social media, because I find it's a great way to get exposed to ideas that I haven't been that I haven't encountered before. But just by nature, I'm a very critical person. So I'm always like, like my, my first instinct is always like to question things and, and to see how that aligns with 
all the prior knowledge and experience and education that I've received in the past and how that aligns. And then like when it doesn't align, then I'm like, okay, well, I want to know why, how, like if this is new information, where is it coming from? Is that like original source reliable? And is this something that I need to have a conversation with other SLPs about like changing my practice and adapting to that new information? So I think social media is great for getting exposed to ideas, but you can't let it then just be like, okay, I'll do that now. (laughs) Exactly. I feel like everything you just said in the past 30 seconds defines what an expert is. Oh, you're so sweet. (laughs) Because you're thinking like an expert. And I'm sure you are one as well. But I think that whole process of reflecting on your own practice, which is what you said, inquiring and being a skeptic skepticism is actually really good at opening up doors to like critical thinking a clinical reasoning problem-based learning all of those things that we know are established in literature that help us build clinical expertise all of that happens with disagreement and skepticism because now we're questioning the why and that's the only way we're going to have some kind of positive practice change versus just being told that we need to do it mm-hmm. We're not without tying it into a purpose of like or meaning to you. You're you're just gonna do it because someone told you to. But it won't really create long long lasting change unless you figured out the why. So again, yeah, I love social media. I you know um we all I feel like we've connected through social media, right? Like and just the amount of reach you can have and the amount of impact you can have if you've taken the time to build your expertise you can now share that with a global audience and truly influence change and i think in the past 5 years even our field has come such a long way because of facebook and instagram because we have all those people who've gotten out there and told slps you cannot accept lower wages you cannot be okay with working at a place that doesn't support instrumentation i've seen those conversations and i've i i don't you feel like there's really been a positive change because of all of these conversations. So that's the good thing. But I think the negative again is everyone has a voice now and you can find validation anywhere. So if you believe in a conspiracy or you believe in fake news or pseudoscience or whatever it is, you're going to find an audience that validates it. And we've forgotten the true like scientific investigative process. So Back in the day, if you needed to gain more knowledge in something, you had to physically go to a library, read a book. You had to take the time to get um, information about something. But now you can literally Google something on your phone, get half-baked, like three-sentence paragraphs on any question you have in the world. And then you can find an online forum and then pretend to be an expert and a thousand people will take your word for it because they don't know any better. I think that's really dangerous. So, I mean, I guess I'm just pointing out the problem here. But I think, again, coming back to the learner, we have to be trained and educated in how to better vet the trainings and the resources and the evidence we're seeing. Because just because a famous researcher said it doesn't make it true. We just have to be able to inquire more and be skeptics and apply that to practice that's meaningful to us and our patients. Mm, That's so true. I was actually... I've been working on preparing some presentations that I'm going to be giving in a few weeks. And I was doing it all from home, all on my computer, because I'm exceptionally fortunate to work for a learning hospital. So I have university access. So I have an EDU email so I can use their library and access the beautiful world of research or the vast majority of it. And I stopped and I thought for a minute and I was like, you know what? Back back in my day... (laughs) 
<laughs> I love acting like I'm so old. But seriously, when I was an undergrad, I had to go to the library. Like I had to physically take myself to another building and stay there for hours looking through books and doing research. And now I can do it from my computer. Also, because most of my research is in articles and journals and not actual books. So that helps. But still, I was thinking about that today, Rinky. And I'm like, it is amazing what we have to be able to access. But then there is that barrier too. If you're not affiliated with a hospital or with a university, how are you going to get that research? How are you going to read articles from a phaseology? Like that's a journal that is closed to us. Even at the, even at the hospital? Oh no, that one I can't access. Okay. But because of the hospital, because of the hospital, I can read a phaseology. Otherwise I would, I would have to email each and every primary author of every paper and beg and hope that they have the time to share that article with me. I know, right? And that's another problem where I think Asha had a paper and I'll find that one and share that with you as well as a resource where they surveyed a bunch of SLPs and they found that only 20% of them are ever using a peer-reviewed journal article to guide practice. 20%. Like I was shocked when I saw that. And I think I I, when I read it. through the reasons, all <laughs> of the limitations are super valid. Like, oh yeah, they don't have oh, the time. They don't have mm-hmm. the support. They don't have this financial constraints and nobody cares about it at work. Like we said, like it's not, you're not being held to a standard where that even matters. And unless you work at an academic medical center, which again, now like you, I am fortunate to work at one now where we have clinical ladders or levels. So your pay scale is directly tied into competence or expertise or certain things you're doing going above and beyond as a clinician. For most people, you're hourly, you know, you're just being paid to see patients. So I do think that lack of access to all of this good quality evidence is definitely an issue. But I also think that that's used too often as an excuse. So again, there's so many ways to access good information now. Asha evidence maps um, and speech bites are way of uh, informed SLP. That's a website uh, that basically just provides more easy to consume um, free access to summaries of like RCTs and systematic reviews and evidence that's already been published on any topic that you can look up in SLP. ASHA Practice Portal guides clinical practice and summarizes information for you. So again, you can attend a conference and get like 32 hours of education that you can at least expect will be of a certain quality. So I do think saying, well, it's too expensive or that this this is too time consuming often becomes an easy excuse for us to fall back on. But if we're motivated enough to really seek out a way to learn, there's observations. You Like you said, you can email authors. You can have a journal club or support group in your area where you're having that dialogue with SLPs. There's a lot you can do to kind of change where you are and improve your clinical practice a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think it's putting the pressure back on our workplace too. I think so much we want to take the ownership and be like, well, we we have to do all this work. We have to be motivated. And I'm thinking like, let's be motivated to put the pressure back on the system mm-hmm. <laughs> that's putting us in these restraints to begin with. And that's always a fun talk. I get really like... <laughs> really antsy about that because I you know I don't like when I very much don't like to hear when workplaces aren't you know treating their employees with the providing them with the tools and the resources they need just like the minimum not even going above and beyond 
but like providing them with the things that we need just to do our job to treat patients. Like it's crazy. That's a whole nother talk. I know, right? There, and yeah, I think back at every setting I've worked in except this academic medical center, I thought they were the best jobs of my life, right? Like when I got into acute care or I was in a rehab setting and even the nursing home I was at, I they were really good. Like, you know, they, they, they weren't as horrible as people make out their experiences to be. And I always thought, oh my God, I'm so fortunate I got a job in a medical setting. Like I just felt like that was my reward, just mm-hmm. getting the job because they're so hard to find, especially if you're moving around. But I, I really think we need to change that. Like we shouldn't be okay with just taking any job that comes your way because it's in a medical setting. Like, I, I, again, like you said, that's a different conversation on how we need to hold our work, our employers more accountable or our supervisors and instructors more accountable. But yeah, those are conversations that need to be had because young students and clinicians deserve better. Mm -hmm. They're not just bodies filling a building and providing Mm -hmm. therapy minutes. It really needs to be so much more than that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So we're kind of already on this topic of advocacy. So let's dig a little bit more into how that relates to building expertise and improving our clinical skill and patient outcomes. So how can involvement in organizations that are out there and in volunteering for things, how can that feed into the expertise level? In my experience, I think involvement and advocacy are both things that build into expertise so well, because let's talk about advocacy first. If you have to advocate for your patient to have instrumental exams, I'm going to take that because I think that's the most popular topic in our field as dysphagia specialists. You have to be able to go to your administrator and tell them what the costs are associated with thickened liquids or associated with someone getting pneumonia and getting hospitalized, how your therapy services can help minimize some of that. What are the documented objective data we have that show how we as speech pathologists are improving clinical outcomes in patients with stroke or dementia or dysphagia? That's all evidence and data you have to collect. It's not going to be a simple conversation as, oh, you know, I want this $2,000 or $500 exam for my patient that the five SLPs before me never got just because I feel like it. No one's going to prove that. If we have taken the time to really make a case for ourselves and do the research, it'll automatically help improve your expertise because that's information you may not have necessarily seeked out before as a practicing clinician, or it might be something you've skimmed over. But every time we're advocating for our patients or even for ourselves, so if we want to demand a raise or we want to say, well, why is the PT getting access to all those devices and I can't even get like um, a lingual resistance device or I can't even get a standardized assessment? Well, why should you? But if you can demonstrate your value as a speech pathologist by sharing your expertise or by, again, knowing the language of the administrators and the physicians you're speaking with. I think that'll go a long way in you being able to advocate for your needs professionally and for your patients' needs as well. So don't you feel like, have you had those experiences where advocacy has eventually helped you learn something that you didn't think you even needed to learn before because you didn't know what you didn't know, right? Yes, but on like a much smaller scale, like I just, I feel like so selfish this talk. Like, <laughs> I'm like okay, because here's my example, like, I was going through like a super rough time. And so I was like, I need some like mental health work. I need to learn about burnout. I need to learn about mindfulness. And so I did some interviews for the podcast 
um, three different people. So I had like three very different perspectives on burnout and mindfulness practices and just like managing kind of your mental health in this field. So like I started doing the work and then I gave a presentation on mindfulness that, that was requested. Like I didn't, I didn't seek it out. So it kind of came out of nowhere and I was like, oh yeah, okay, I could do that. So having to take all that knowledge and then distill it to kind of be able to share it and like teach it back and like learn the phrases has helped me implement that as well. So like I can teach it to my patients now really easily. Now, of course, they're not worried about burnout in their profession, but <laughs> uh, like mindfulness helps our patients mm -hmm. who are working through concussion. And now I'm working with a lot of post-COVID uh, cognitive patients. And so they're experiencing a lot of things that like some of these tools are useful for sharing with them. And because I've done all that work on me and then sharing that with other people in like a formal setting, like it's trickled through all these different ways. And like, imagine if I was at your talk and I questioned some of the things you said, because maybe I'm this mindfulness expert who's actually done this work for 20 years, right? Um, I think for some reason, SLPs take offense to that online at conferences. Like if someone questions them, I've been there too. We tend to get super defensive of our practice and we're like, no, but I did all this work and I read these books and I've been teaching this to patients. How can you say I'm wrong? Versus, but like like you said, for mindfulness, if I came back to you with a question, it would, don't you think you would be like, well, okay, yeah, maybe that's something I don't know about. I should just go back and read a little bit more about it. Or then that conversation would then open up another opportunity for you to learn more and refine your practice. So I don't know why, like in, at medical conferences, I've asked my husband that he's a physician. It's so common to have disagreements and it's so common to have these discussions because it's a known fact, like practices change over time. There's new surgical techniques, there's new technology that changes your practice all the time. But I don't know why as SLPs, we get super defensive about that. So again, I think if we were more open to having those conversations and being open to changing our mindsets a little bit as practices and things evolve in the field, that would just make us all better clinicians. That's so true. There is that level of defensiveness. I remember giving a presentation, just a local one to some local SLPs. And um, I was kind of sharing like a before and after I had implemented um, this technique that was for like aphasia therapy. Mm -hmm. And so uh, they just asked a question and it was something along the lines of like something about like data collection. And I was like, oh, I didn't really, it wasn't that formal. Like I didn't really keep it from week to week, session to session. I just, I have this problem with being like really honest. <laughs> so <laughs> I tell people like what I didn't, didn't do. But then like, I really, I, I had this feeling of like, should I have? I guess I should have. It was expected because no, I think she just had a question. She was just curious, mm -hmm. but like we can, we can get like, I don't know. So in our thoughts and so insecure about things that it makes us that intensely defensive, it really is worrisome. And like you said, it can really like shut down learning and progress and collaboration when someone could just be curious and they just want to know more. Exactly. And especially like this generation of students, I say that again, like I'm super old, but I think we're all millennials. We were born after 1981, those of us, but the Gen Z or like even the, the younger millennials, they've, I almost feel like, again, because they've grown up on social media, they've seen more of these disagreements and they've seen a lot of opinions voiced that we didn't necessarily grow around. Uh, we probably 
were with a circle of people who who tend to agree with most of our beliefs because we find our group and we we're not used to having these questions thrown at us but the new generation of students are exposed to that and i've i've realized in my supervision experiences that they ask a lot more questions and they want to know why so you almost have to justify what you've been doing you can't just say well this is the way it's always been done you have to explain the why to them and i think again those conversations with students instead of feeling well i have 10 years of experience how can this student even be questioning me like they just got out of grad school that's not they're not questioning you and your motive they're exactly. questioning to learn they want to know they're filing that in with what they've been taught and trying to make sense of this vast field that they're about to be dumped into so like <laughs> I like I love having students for that reason because I never wanted to be I complacent. I wanted to know why I was doing something and I didn't want to just do it because that was a habit that was formed or that was a way I had learned it and didn't question it at the time. Like I always wanted people to say, "Oh, Leanne, I reviewed that video that you did. I'm curious as to why you thought this instead of that." Like I would like that. It'd be scary. I'd start like armpit sweating. I know. I'd be like, oh my God, I'm so incompetent. And they found me out. But then because of that conversation, I would be that much better because they made me better. Exactly. We don't get better by just exposure. Like if you just take swallow studies, for example, in those 10 minutes, we're looking at a swallow study. We're with a radiologist, probably with the patient and a family member, having to remember everything we learned about anatomy and physiology. And if it's outpatient, you're also having to determine if this person's going to eat for the next six months of their life maybe and what kind of treatments you need to recommend in those 10 minutes of experience you're not gaining expertise but if you went back and someone questioned your decision or wanted to have a conversation that would be more self-reflective practice where you're kind of again identifying the why like why did i say this or did i look at this enough and when we're reflecting and kind of building on that we work towards becoming experts mm -hmm. Yeah, just thinking of students again, like I always love it when they get to take a day or an hour and and shadow another SLP and see how they do something too. Because I'm like, yes, they need to be with one person so they get like solid training. But at the same time, they need exposure to see how other people are practicing too, because all of that can influence. Like I always like to think like, take the best of what you see from everybody and make that your practice. Exactly. <laughs> And you brought up such an important point. We talked about all like the technical aspects of the field. Like we talked about the basic education you need, the skills you need to even practice. But we kind of left out this whole personality trait thing or interpersonal skills, which is such a big part of our field. Because I think speech pathology is such an art as much as it is a science. So even if you had all the knowledge in the world and all the experience in the world, but you don't know how to communicate that to your patient or you are unable to put their preferences, be empathetic towards their preferences or deal with ethical dilemmas and having difficult conversations with family members and counseling them, you're not going to be an effective therapist. And each of us would do that in such different ways because of our cultural experiences, because of our own personality. So I, I really think that makes or breaks a therapist and affects outcomes as much as your training and your technical skills. Mm -hmm. Don't you think? Yeah, because... Because we spend typically so much more face-to-face -face time with a patient than their doctor, their referring doctor, than like anybody else, but maybe the nurse, you know, we have to be able to build that relationship and be able to listen. And I always find that hard because now I'm thinking of like balancing the productivity time with 
meeting their needs and hearing their needs, like really listening to them to know what their priorities are Mm -hmm. and what's the best way forward through. Because there's all these things we have to balance. Just spending time with a patient in therapy or an evaluation is a juggling act as you're just balancing those things. Not even to mention all the clinical expertise you need to bring in to do your work of evaluating or treating them. Yeah, I almost sometimes just thinking about this field like overwhelms me, Ranky. I'm like, oh, I'm so tired. We, I, we do need to like, you know, I sometimes feel like if you think about your most interesting cases, it almost is never the case, but it's more of like the personal impact it had on you. It could be a story or an experience or something that changed how you think about something. Like, I just think those soft skills can only be developed if we're seeking it out. Like reading more about counseling, like you said, mindfulness, reading more about motivational interviewing and all of these things, which we're not taught in grad school and again not blaming the graduate programs for it but I I think us just having this conversation and maybe five people listening to this and thinking oh wow I didn't think those are things that could help me become an expert or help me help make me a better SLP these are conversations we need to be having because this is what's going to make us more effective clinicians and you talked about involvement so maybe instead of us rambling on um, I, I do think involvement with at a local level, so at the facility you work at, even if it's by interprofessional education, like doing in-services, having conversations with administrators, having a local support group of SLPs in your area, or at the state level by joining your state association, and then at the national level by joining ASHA or volunteering with a cause you're interested in. Like it could be a stroke association, an ALS association, Those things open you up to such different perspectives. So not only are you networking, collaborating, finding a group of people who are passionate in a cause as much as you, but you're also learning so much from all the different uh, professionals involved in that organization and getting opportunities to grow. Um, People think, why should they volunteer? I think you get back so much more than you give in. It's, It's something that's really changed me as a clinician and um, I just wish more people did more of that because it's going to help you work towards that expertise without you even realizing it's happening. Brinky, that's a theme that I've heard repeated on this podcast a lot. Like people have spoken very, very highly of their experiences collaborating and volunteering with organizations and specifically when they've been in patient-centered organizations. So they're like going to speak at a group or just assisting with a group of like mm-hmm. people with Parkinson's. And so like that is, yeah, that is a constant reframe that I hear. So like if anyone's taking notes, write that down. If you're not doing it, that is very, very desirable to do. <laughs> yeah, it, it, you can start small, you know, it doesn't have to be you looking at someone and saying, oh my God, they're just three years out and they're already at ASHA. Like, how do I do that? How do I, how do I get involved with DRS or how do I get involved at the national level? You don't have to, you can start small and sometimes seeing that short-term immediate impact of the change you can have in just your community might be so much more reinforcing than you waiting for something to happen at the national level. Because that can, again, be pretty disheartening if you have to influence policy change or you have to influence, like, let's improve dysphagia graduate education for all our courses. That could be 20 years before you actually see the outcomes that you want. But at the local level, you can creates so much positive impact and change. So just just get involved. If you're interested in sharing, 
your knowledge. It can be intimidating, but reach out and see if there's physicians who want to learn more about laryngectomy or head and neck cancer, anything, aphasia, something you feel like you have enough knowledge in to share or do it with a group of students at one of your local universities. And you can start there and build from that, learning about what are some of the things that you enjoy doing as well, and then kind of working towards that and navigating your journey. Yes, I love that. Yeah, I have to reflect back on, I think the most I've done is just kind of joining some local SLP groups that like meet once a month or every other month, and then volunteering to like present at them because that that also really challenges you. Like I really encourage people who don't have a like a deathly fear of speaking in public. So if you're free from that, like volunteer to speak because the the work that you do to prepare for that will come back and like benefit you so much. It's so important. And then to be able to have that discussion while you're up there with other people is really really good. And I feel like that And it's really scary too. It is. Like I yeah. I enjoy it cuz I'm I don't know. I'm weird like that, but I still like do the stress sweat when I'm up there. And like I mentioned that I'm preparing for a presentation in a few weeks. I am, I'm still having like crises of faith leading up to it. I'm like, who am I to stand up in front of people? I don't know anything. <laughs> like imposter syndrome. And I think that's almost a good thing. Like the fact that we still are nervous after so many years of doing this. Um, I think that's a good thing because it, it means that you hold yourself accountable to a certain standard and you want to make sure the evidence or information you're providing is really up to the mark versus I've seen some people at some ASHA conferences. Well, if I've attended a few years in a row and I see the same name and a similar subject, I've I've seen that they've not even taken the time to change their slides, no! which, which is bad. Like complacency is bad. Oh. And that, that does tend to happen in the experts sometimes where you feel like, you don't need to do anymore. Like you've achieved a certain status, you've gotten tenure or a certain salary or a certain peer, um, you know, people like you enough or whatever. You've made your mark. And this again happens with researchers a lot where they don't feel like, oh, you know, social media isn't for me because I publish in journals. But you know what? Majority of the people, according to Asha, 80% of people are not reading that journal. So if you've spent 25 years of your life researching something, Put yourself out there, which might be hard for them. Have an Instagram account, tweet, so that you can actually create that difference um, which you've spent your life like learning and building towards that problem. So share that solution with people. So I think, again, the onus is on those experts to figure out how they can truly maximize their influence and impact through organizations and through social media. I, I think we need more people to be comfortable doing mm -hmm. that and not become complacent. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, yep. I agree. That would that would be helpful. I support that. <laughs> <laughs> I one of the most life changing courses um, I've taken was with Dr. Yanessa Humbert. So I'll share that personal story. It, it's called Critical Thinking and Dysphagia Management. She and Dr. Emily Plowman did this course in person. They did like six or seven throughout the country, but it was literally the first time somebody presented slides at a conference and said. And when we ask questions, she didn't give us the answers. She's like, you tell me why this is a question. Or like, you tell me what you think um, about X, Y, and Z. So she encouraged so much critical thinking and reasoning. Obviously, that was the name of the conference, but left us with more questions than answers, which if any of us wanted to practice on Monday morning, we had to seek those out because otherwise we would have just been like, what have we been doing for so many years? So 
that eventually led me to seek her out every time I had a question or interact with her on social media. Because again, at the time, she was one of the few or one one of two researchers who was even on social media to talk about dysphagia. And I was like, you know what? Why don't we create something? Like, why don't we create some kind of trainings for SLPs who want to learn more about dysphagia? Because there just isn't enough out there. There's enough for, at the graduate level, but what about people who want to continue to advance their skills in this area? So we started out by creating something called Dysphagia Grand Rounds, where we literally just took papers and talked about them as a clinician and a researcher. And that kind of built into what we have today called STEP, um, stepcommunity.com, where we have like 50 hours of training um, covering normal swallowing, assessment, treatment, which again encompasses like blogs, articles, webinars, and podcast discussions on some of the most important topics in swallowing. And they're, they're created for, we have students in universities using it. We have more experienced clinicians around the world using it. And I feel like the process of meeting her online, doing all of this virtually, creating this website, and now like having to answer people when they have questions about the stuff we've actually put out there has really changed me as a clinician. And all of this was only possible. We've met like three times in our life and we run a business today. So (laughs) I just think because I just seeked her out as an expert, what I consider to be an expert has allowed us to create so much positive change in the field. And we're constantly getting feedback and trying to refine what we offer. So I encourage more clinicians to do that, like approach researchers and people you look up to for mentorship opportunities. Most likely you're not going to be turned down. Because I think at the end of the day, we all want to improve the field. Just I just think enough people may not be seeking those things out. So we definitely need to do more of that. That's true. I think like I keep coming back to like how I've learned and grown the most is because of this podcast, having these one-on-one conversations mm-hmm. with other SLPs. And so now like any opportunity I get, like that's what I like shout from the rooftop. Are you having clinical discussions with other SLPs? Are you being like honest, like, I feel like this is where the safe space is where you can talk about where you're lacking. And so like, to demonstrate that I've been very open with my shortcomings and what I don't know, and I've tried not to hide it and to be very open to let people know, like, you can do that. You can do that with your colleagues. Of course, not everybody, you know, there aren't great people everywhere, but like, exactly. Most of us really want to come together and support and to shore up and help each other out. And you don't have to be an expert to share what you do know with somebody like the two or three or four of you can become experts together I love that I was gonna say I'm sure the podcast like most of my friends and colleagues who have either a blog so I have a friend Jonathan he runs dysphagia cafe Meredith runs um, the informed SLP and I run the medical SLP forum which is a free group on Facebook that now has 40,000 members and then you with the podcast everyone has that same experience when you just go above and beyond to have something like that it's it's a super vulnerable place to be in because you're opening yourself up to all this judgment and all this insecurities which can pop up because it it shows you what you don't know but then having these conversations or reading posts on my forum or running a website I think it also brings you those opportunities where you can fill in those gaps and then constantly continue to learn So it's such an interesting and great thing. I think it just comes down to having the motivation to do that and being okay with 
discovering that there's so much you don't know and then working again towards filling in those gaps. Yeah. I remember having a conversation on this podcast and my guest was was demonstrating critical thinking by like, you know, me asking a question and, or me just being like, oh my gosh, I have like 50 million more questions than when we started this conversation. And that was not the intended outcome. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to walk away with a little bit more certainty, a little bit more knowledge. And she was like, well, you will be a better clinician because of all those questions that you have. And I was like, I don't know how that's true, but I'm gonna take your word for it. (laughs) Because when we have questions, we will keep thinking. I love that you said that. I love it kind of, it ties in back with what we started with, right? Like expertise. I think we live in, there's a word for it that I can't remember, but we live in this culture where like you can order something on Amazon and it's here in two days. You order food on Uber. It's, you know, we live in this culture where we're so used to getting everything we want immediately that we forget that there are certain things you need to work towards. Expertise being one of those, like you can't expect to be at a place where someone who's taken the time to have that deliberate practice over many years of training and acquisition of skills and knowledge has reached by just being taking a course or just try to get that in a year. Like, I think that's just an unrealistic expectation to have. And again, when we're at a facility, this is an ASHA research survey again that says 84% of SLPs in medical settings, pediatric and adult, are considered to be swallowing experts. And that's just a, such a fallacy because how can you expect a new grad or how can you expect someone who hasn't even had that hands-on training to be an expert? So let's not even burden them by calling them an expert. Let's say they're the swallowing therapist and let them then work towards building that expertise. So it's not, we're used to this culture where everything happens really quickly, but some things just need to take their time. And learning has to be structured and graduated and um, happen in little pieces so that it's comfortable for the learner and, and truly helping in building um, mm-hmm. that expertise. Yeah. I really like how we've talked about so many different pathways to build towards expertise. You know, it's not limited to CEUs, but they're, of course, an important part. And it's not limited to what access you do or don't have to the literature, to articles, although that helps. It's about engaging with other SLPs. It's about volunteering in organizations, like all of those things together, not isolated, build together the fabric that you need. I'm like picturing that island, you know, it's a common picture on Google if you look up like the success island and you'll see all of these things that went into it where like all of that is submerged underwater. So all people see is that success but they haven't seen the hard work, the sleepless nights, all the investment, like the money that went into it, the time, the resources and all of that because it's submerged underwater. So I almost feel like if expertise is kind of the top of the island, what kind of work experiences you have, what setting you're in, what your employers are encouraging, the clinical training, education, interprofessional collaboration, and then support, mentorship, CEUs, all of those things are like little pieces under the water. And I feel like those are the things we need to learn to recognize more and build more instead of just looking at someone and saying, oh, that's an export. How do I get that? And I think what we don't see what's also submerged is all of the insecurity and all of the hard work that went into it too. And that it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable putting yourself out there like we've talked about. And it's uncomfortable having to have X amount of years experience and go learn from somebody else who might be newer in the field. Because I know how you, you mentioned like the, how long you've been practicing 
doesn't always, it doesn't always correlate to what your level of skill is. And I just think that there, because there's so much out there, like, like no one can know everything. And so I a hundred percent believe that there can be a student who hasn't even graduated yet, who knows a lot about something I know very little about. And like, I want to listen to them. I want to hear what they have to say. Like, I think we have to understand that knowledge can come from everywhere and you can't discount it because Mm -hmm. you think less like that's that difference between validating your sources and knowing what is reliable and not reliable. And it really doesn't have anything to do with age or amount of experience, but like where that information comes from. I can share a recent experience that happened before we start to wrap up where as part of like SIG 13, which is a special interest group in swallowing. So I'm on the coordinating committee. So there's six of us who are part of this team and we figure out professional development opportunities for our clinicians. What are the things we need to be advocating for? We update the practice portal. So there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes. And a part of being on the coordinating committee is we actually meet at the national office which unfortunately hasn't happened because of COVID. So it was a lot of Zoom meetings, but over two days and we do Capitol Hill visits. So this was actually yesterday and the day before. We had our virtual advocacy ASHA initiatives that we had to meet with legislators at the state level and at the federal level, like literally someone sitting in an office in DC and talk to them about issues that are important to us. And I naturally picked I picked telehealth as one of the issues because that's on ASHA's public policy agenda for 2021. And then I picked advocacy for dysphagia services. I have never been more nervous on a Zoom call in my entire life because I've never been involved in politics or like policy changes. And I'm literally talking to like this Congress person and his staff members sitting in DC. Oh my God, I was sweating. I, I, I was like, I know swallowing. I know speech pathology. I can do this. I remembered all the acts that Asha is like advocating for and where it is in Congress and memorized all of that. But I was like stuttering through the whole conversation. And I realized like that just, again, made me think of the podcast and think about, oh my God, I'm, this is, this is normal. Like there's so much that even as experts, we know, but then when we have to have these conversations with someone outside our field, this was a true learning experience for me. Cause now the next time I do it, I feel like I'll have more experience and will be able to make that case better. Overall, I think it went really well. But again, it was, I think the more we push ourselves and kind of go beyond our comfort zones, that's what results in true growth. So that was my story. I think it was just interesting being able to advocate at that level. And I feel like I took away a lot that I'm going to work on from that experience. That's amazing. I totally agree. When you started that story, I was like, oh my God, I'm right there with you. Like my heart seized up. I was stressed. I was like simply stress sweating. It was legit. I would be so scared too. It is. It's so different, right? Taking our field to people who know or who just think, oh, we all work in schools, like a very simplistic, exactly. you know, understanding of it. And to communicate the complexity and the vastness of it, in a succinct amount of time before their eyes glaze over, you know? <laughs> and I didn't know Asha, honestly, even being, I've been volunteering with Asha for like eight years now. I didn't know they had an advocacy toolkit. Like I didn't know they tell you exactly what their issues are. They have issue briefs that we can take to our legislators. I didn't know meeting with a congressman would be as easy as sending an email because it's just something we've all never done before. And I think now more than ever during COVID, like for those of us who had to advocate for telehealth or other services, we've 
we've had to kind of engage in those conversations. So I'll share that link with you. I think when it's almost dues renewal time right now, so people tend to question what Asha is doing for them or question why they're paying those annual fees. And I, I just think there's so much that goes on behind the scenes that we don't know. But if we took the time to learn more about it, you'll know how much advocacy is really going on and what the power of that advocacy is because it also lists all of the things we've been able to achieve and change. So yeah, it's something we all should be aware of as SLPs. Yeah. It's handy because you have volunteered with ASHA. Like you, you get that knowledge, you get that understanding. Mm-hmm. For many years, like I barely visited the ASHA website because I didn't know what was there. I didn't know the tools. And then over the years, they've added more and they've really refined it. And it's, it's got so much there. I just think their PR people need to do a better job of sharing what they're doing, they how do. they're doing it. And the resources that are there for us daily, like what we'll get is a a little pamphlet that's like, you know, you get a discount at a car rental place. And I'm like, (laughs) cool, 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 cool. But tell me about all the legislature you're influencing to assist our profession and our patients. Exactly. And we met with the the meetings we had were with the president, um, the CEO. We had like the advocacy team join us and we literally told them exactly that we're like, you can send this lengthy email that nobody's going to read that tells us about all the policy changes, but it really needs to be in that renewal booklet or it needs to be succinct. It needs to be in the form of videos, like two minute videos we can watch. And then we'll buy into the cause more. Like we'll be more encouraged to participate in these advocacy campaigns. Cause right now it's more like, great, they're here to get my money again. You know, there needs to be better communication. For sure. As communication specialists, we demand better communication. It's true. It's true. I love it. And I think sometimes we feel like we want, like we want Asha to be the pit bull in our corner. You know, we want to, we want to like unleash Asha at, you know, caseloads that are unreasonable and the lack of knowledge about our profession. You know, like the really, really big things that we feel as individuals, we wouldn't have much of an impact on. But um, yeah, again, a whole nother conversation. (laughs) Yeah, I think in summary, we can say that change really begins Mm -hmm. with you. I I do think Mm -hmm. that's true. Both of us talked about experiences where we have been able to influence change by working on ourselves, self-reflecting, identifying areas we didn't have enough knowledge in, building expertise, and then sharing that with the world and paying it forward and maximizing our impact. Um, And you can do that through social media, write a blog, join a state association, volunteer with an organization, or just do it at the local level. But it's only by that ongoing practice can we not only positively impact our field, but also build towards what we're talking about today, which is expertise. Mm -hmm. Rinky, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to have this conversation with me and for planning it out and going over those details. And I really enjoyed it hope that this talk has been a valuable instigator for our listeners to go out and talk about it with their SLP friends and then consider making some of those changes and getting involved at different levels. I think that that's what we need is we need SLPs who take, you take that passion for their job and put it into like this wider network of advocacy, like our whole job is advocacy. And so like getting involved at all these different levels is really exciting too. So. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I really, really enjoyed this. And I do want to say I love your podcast and just keep doing what you're doing. I think you're truly, truly inspiring and influencing change. And I mean that 
So thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Now, Rinky, if people are like, ooh, so you're on social media, how can I follow you and like talk to you and learn all those things? What are some ways people can get in touch with you? So I will say that most of the educational resources that I pretty much share are through STEP, which is stepcommunity.com. I have a Facebook page, so it's facebook.com slash Rinky SLP. And then my Twitter and Instagram handles are also Rinky, R-I-N-K-I SLP. I will say I'm from the generation where Instagram wasn't being used for influencing yet. So most of my pictures are just personal pictures of me and my friends and my family and my <laughs> husband, which I've listed in my description. Because I suddenly had this onslaught of followers the last two years, every time I gave a talk or did something. And I think they're all following me because they're thinking I'm going to share some SLP knowledge. So I do that through Instagram, mostly through stories. But please don't follow me for that because I, I just... Reach out to me if you have a question. I'm happy to educate, collaborate, chat more about things in the field, but I don't necessarily use any social media platform for that specifically. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think that's totally fine, totally great, because from these conversations that I've had with people, I've started following them on Instagram and online. And they're doing the same thing, mm -hmm. Rinky. They're just showing pictures of their families, their vacations, what they had for breakfast. And I'm here for it. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. It just it kind of shows the human level of all these people we're looking at at conferences or online. Yeah. yeah. And then we have all these resources we can share. And I think most of the work I personally do is through ASHA and DRS because I feel like I'm more useful that way or influencing change that way. But yeah, I guess you and I met because of Instagram, mm -hmm. right? So it's, yeah, the social media presence um, can totally be personal and you can still be making those connections and creating change. Yeah. True, true. All right. Okay. Well, thank you, Rinky. Thanks for everything. For our listeners, be sure to access the discussion guide and the show notes on Speech Uncensored so that you can take the opportunity to apply some of these tools that Rinky talked about in your practice and see how it goes. And in closing, I want to encourage you to write a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts about the things that you've learned on the Speech Uncensored podcast so that other SLPs can find the podcast and join us on this journey. And I hope the material that we've covered today has nourished your mind so that your practice can flourish. Now I want you to go out there and be awesome.